Gospel of John in the uh, 18th chapter, verses 12 and 13. It says this, So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now, I find this interesting. They do so because they're, in essence, treating him as a common criminal. Uh, he's been ordered to be arrested, and they bind him. But I find it somewhat amusing in the sense that, that this is the one who has calmed the seas and stilled the wind, who have cast out demons, who have raised the dead, who, have, who has cured all sorts of different diseases. In their scene. And yet we also know that he is the word of God. He is the one who made all that we know. And yet they think binding him could keep him if he didn't submit. But they do what they do, not only for what they think is to protect themselves, but to treat him again as a common criminal. And they led him to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, Annas was previously a high priest. But he didn't stop his influence with that. As a matter of fact, Annas reached the pinnacle of the high priesthood, not because he was the most holy person or his family was holy, but because he had sufficient money to purchase it from the Roman governor. And not only did he have enough money to purchase it for him, he then purchased it for his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who is now the high priest. And later on, after Caiaphas is no longer high priest, one of Annas' sons is going to be high priest. So again, this family does it not because they're holy, but because they have power. They know how to influence the Roman occupation. So they led him first, which is interesting, to Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas, if you will, has no jurisdiction, but that's where they bring him because that's who's kind of set this thing up. And then we move to Matthew uh, 26, 57, and I'm also going to read 58, which is kind of in sync with another part of John. So those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Now, this, the scribes and the elders, is the Sanhedrin. It's the 70. It's the official court, if you will, of the Jewish people. And they're the ones who render matters according to the law. And so they brought Jesus at night to the Sanhedrin. Now, I want you to notice, throughout this whole ordeal, Jesus is not going to do what we all tend to do. When something happens to us, and we don't think that it's right or legitimate, we say, but it isn't fair. And that's our immediate action. But it isn't fair. You will see Jesus throughout all of these situations, never raising the argument that it isn't fair. Their initial trial, if you will, before the Sanhedrin is unlawful because it's been taking place at night. Interesting 
people who are so concerned with the law are violating the law to accomplish what it is they want to accomplish. And so he's brought there. It says, but Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now, I wanted you to know why Peter was following at a distance. He wanted to know what was going to happen to Jesus. He had a right to kind of want to know what's going to happen to Jesus because Jesus was his rabbi and closely connected to him. John in chapter 18, also in verse 15, tells us not only did Simon follow but Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now, the, that disciple was known to the high priest. Now, that disciple doesn't tell, he, tell us who he is, but it seems that John has this way of never naming himself. He'll say, it's the disciple that Jesus loved. Or that. So, in my humble opinion, it's John who's accompanying with Jesus. But the high priest also knows John. He says, and John entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. So Peter comes and he kind of hangs out in the courtyard and John kind of goes a little further away to see what's happening in this trial. Now we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 26, starting with verse 59, continuing what happened. And if you notice, we have to keep going back because each of the Gospels has a particular theme that they want to approach. And so they give us some information. They don't give us all the information. Now, Luke will tell us some other things. And I, again, I encourage you to read the other Gospels to see how these things fit together. But this is the general um, program. So it says, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. So you notice, again, not only is the time of the trial unlawful, they've already preordained an outcome. The ends justify the means. They want him dead. So here all these holy guys who keep talking about the law are going to take false testimony so that they might kill Jesus. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. So they didn't give up at first. They kept sending people to bear witness that was false, and they knew it was false. But under the law, you had to have two or three witnesses confirm everything. So if one witness said X and another said Y, that didn't confirm it. Both witnesses had to say X. And even though they were lying, they couldn't get their story straight. So not only are they unlawful, they're incompetent. But later on, two witnesses came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, that's a lie. Because the impression that this person is giving is he's altered what Jesus said. What Jesus said was, if you destroy this temple, he didn't say the temple of God, he said this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. However, technically the guy's right. Because Jesus 
is the Son of God. He is God with us, Emmanuel. So he is the temple of God. So even in their lie, they are testifying what is true, even though Jesus never said that. And a little side note, not only is Jesus the temple of God, we are told we believers are the temple of God. And the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? So he understands that this testimony isn't going to be sufficient. And Jesus up until this point has just remained silent. He's not answered his accusers. Now, I believe the reason Jesus is going to speak now is because even though this trial is a sham, and even though they've done it at night, and even though they're trying to get false witnesses, they know they have to pronounce him not guilty. But that is not the plan of God. But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ the Son of God. So now he asks him a question. Now in our culture, in our judicial system, you have the right to remain silent. And as an attorney, I would advise you generally to use that right. Even if you're innocent, because innocent people tend to say really dumb things and get themselves in trouble. So Jesus up until this point, has remained silent. They ask him a question, which puts the onus on him to say, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus answers in the affirmative, yes, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And not only that, when this whole thing is over, there's going to come a time when you're going to see me as who I am. The interesting thing here is not only will Caiaphas and those 70 men who are making up this tribunal, every person who has acknowledged Jesus as Lord and who has not acknowledged Jesus as Lord will see him as Lord. And so Jesus is saying, you may not understand who I am, but there's going to come a time when you will. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, he has blasphemed. What further need to, I'm sorry, what further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. So Caiaphas is saying, okay, the trial up to this point has been unsuccessful. We haven't been able to prove it, but Jesus just said he's the Christ. He's the Son of God. Therefore, he has blasphemed. Now notice, they don't care whether that's true. If it's true, he did not blaspheme. And I find it interesting, the very people who accuse Jesus of blaspheming are the ones who blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like, he who is without sin cast the first stone, or those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw rocks. It's the very sin 
that they accuse Jesus of, they have committed. What do you think? They answered him, he deserves death. Again, he deserves death because he blasphemed, but it wasn't a matter of whether he is or he was not. It would seem to me the next logical question was, well, prove it. But they weren't interested in him proving it. They're not interested in the truth. They're interested in getting away and having him put to death. And I suspect from a human standpoint, one of the reasons is that they understood that if Jesus was the Christ and the people were following him, they would lose their power. And as the old adage says, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. They didn't care the truth. They didn't care the law. They cared that Jesus was an interruption in their power. So after they rendered this verdict of death, then they spat in his face, and these are the the people who are uh, the cohort and those who have arrested Jesus and are uh, charged with his uh, arrest. And they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Again, Jesus never speaks. Jesus doesn't say this isn't fair. Jesus doesn't say, well, I am the Son of God. Why do you treat me this way? Because he had already prayed. And it was already the Father's will that this happened. But again, so often we concentrate on the cross, and we ought to. But the way that our Lord is treated throughout this whole ordeal is heartrending. To think that the Son of God, the one who came because he loved us, was treated this way. Now if we'll skip to verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he nodded before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. First denial. A, a servant girl. A servant girl. An unimposing person. Says, You're with Jesus. And he denies it. when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. So now he ratchets it up. Not only does he deny Jesus, he swears he doesn't know him. He is bearing false witness. He is violating one of the Ten Commandments. A little later, the bystanders came by and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Now, most people will tell you that the reason they're going to say, because the way 
uh, Peter talk was that he was a Galilean. And so to kind of give you some kind of context, they had a particular accent. So it would be similar, if you will, if we were uh, here in, and in California, we don't think we have an accent because we all kind of talk the same. We all say those same little things like y'all or not y'all, but you guys and things like that. But if, a, if somebody came from Texas or whatever from the South, they'll have this drawl. I'll never forget, I, I uh, tried to phone, uh, I called the uh, information people one time when I was in the South to get a number. And I asked her four times what the number was, and I never understood her. She had a certain drawl, and, and the way she pronounced things, I wasn't accustomed to it. And so you kind of know when somebody is not from your region that they're not from your region. And so we kind of pick on the South. But in the Northeast, it's the same way. They, they don't say car. They put an R, a really hard R on it. And they, they say certain things that we don't say. And they'll say like, use guys and whatever. So they have their own accent. And we all kind of, and if you go to England, they, they, there's a Cockney and all these other accents. And so most people say, well, Peter's accent is giving him away. I suggest to you that it was not just Peter's accent. Peter spoke like the Lord spoke. He spoke like someone who knew Jesus. It wasn't just his accent. It was a matter of speech. And so one of the questions I would like to ask myself and you, when anybody accused you of being a believer, simply by the way you speak, is your tone and is your manner of speech such that it is uplifting and not tearing down? Is it one that shows love as opposed to jealousy and hate? Is it one that shows compassion and mercy as opposed to judgment and hatred? So I'm convinced that Peter is accused of being a follower of Jesus because he wasn't just an accent, but he spoke a way that was similar to the way Jesus spoke and not his accent. Which is why I then think why he responds in verse 74. Then he began to curse and swear. I do not know the man. You see, if it was just a Galilean accent, he could have just said, I'm from Galilee. It's Passover. We're all just showing up to Passover. I saw this thing happening. I was interested. I was curious. But he was convicted because of the way he spoke. And so to avoid the way he spoke, he cursed and he swore. I suggest he probably swore like a sailor to prove that he wasn't one of those believers. And immediately, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words which Jesus had said. Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, I'm not going to go there, but in Luke it tells us that when this happens, Jesus looks at Peter. I would think my placing my own internal thoughts into the situation. I think it's bad enough for Peter 
to realize that he denied his Lord three times. But when Jesus saw him, it had to have cut him to the quick. It had to be exceptionally painful to see that Jesus saw him. And I believe, although we're not told, I don't think Jesus looked at him in a condemnatory fashion. I think he looked at him in love and forgiveness. But when you betray somebody like that, when you deny somebody like that, it still impacts you. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, I'm not going to spend any time. I'm going to just mention this briefly. There were two men who are talked about who are sorry for what they've done. One is Peter. And we'll, we'll see in the days to come that Jesus will attempt to restore Peter to that relationship that I'm sure Peter was convinced would never be the same. Because after all, he denied him. He denied him at a critical hour. What kind of disciple was he? But we will see the difference between Peter's sorrow was a turn to repentance. And later, after the resurrection, if you look at the days after Jesus' ascension, Peter rejoices that he suffers for Jesus. Peter will eventually, after ministry, will die the same sort of death Jesus did, but will tell his executioners, I don't deserve to die the way my Lord did. Hang me upside down. But Jesus' denial by Peter turned Peter's from sorrow to repentance. The other man that I don't want to spend much time on is called Judas. After he sees this ordeal, he will try to make things right. He'll go back to the elders and try to give back his 30 pieces of silver. He'll try to undo all that is done, and they refuse to do so. And he also wept, and he is remorseful. But instead of repenting, he simply takes his own life. You see, it's one thing to be sorry for something. It's another to repent after you're sorry. And all too often in our Christian walk, we will say that we are his disciples. And yet sometimes our speech doesn't seem to indicate that. And sometimes our lives don't seem to indicate that. And yes, we can be sorry. And oh, I wish I hadn't done that. But being sorry and wishing you hadn't done it, kind of what Judas did. Yeah, Peter wept, wept bitterly. But he became a disciple 
that did not care what was laid before him because of his love for his Lord and observance of the resurrection. And so what we need to learn here is Jesus does these things without complaint because God has ordained it. And we see, even though Jesus had prophesied that Peter would deny him three times before it ever became sunlight, that we will see that Jesus will restore him. And we will see that Peter, in his grief, repents. And I think we would be deceiving ourselves if there are times in our lives that we don't think that we have denied him, then what do we do with that denial? Be like Judas or be like Peter? Peter would ultimately understand, not right now, but will ultimately understand that God's grace on him will pour out. That God's grace will be sufficient for every struggle that will come in his ministry for the Lord. That he will understand that this was God's plan, and though he wished he hadn't had that part in it, he would know the true forgiveness of God. Not the forgiveness of, I'm going to hold that over you every time you mess up, but the forgiveness that says, what denial? Your sins as far as from the east is from the west. I remember them no more. So in this terrible time of Peter's life, we see hope and redemption and forgiveness that we too should pursue and seek God's grace that it may pour down like rain, not in little mist and drops, but a downpour that we acknowledge. I don't deserve it. Peter didn't deserve it. It's not about them. It's not about you. It's about the love of God and his mercy and his forgiveness. And when we shortchange God's forgiveness by saying, he can't forgive me, then you don't know God. Because he forgave Peter. And if Judas had repented, would have forgiven him. But Judas was simply sorry. Peter repented. And we too as well. So stand with me as we begin to pray.